Let us pray. Lord, what a, an awesome thing it is to come into your presence and uh, to listen to what you would say to us. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, we would be free of all distractions of mind and heart, that we might truly focus on what it is that you want us to know. So, Lord, give us ears to hear and the will to uh, carry out your word. To you be all praise and glory. Amen. We have been working our way through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, just a short little book in the New Testament, just four chapters. You can read it easily in, in one sitting. And yet that little letter is just filled with, with uh, meaning and with, uh, with good application for us. Uh, I think I mentioned before that, uh, that of all the churches under Paul's care, I think that the church in Philippi was his favorite, uh, judging by the, his affectionate tone and uh, the gratitude that he expresses for their partnership in the gospel. The church in Philippi wasn't a perfect church by any means. Um, no church is. Mukilteo is almost perfect, but, you know, not quite. It's not because I'm the pastor of the church, <laughs> so I know it's not perfect. Um, the uh, Philippian believers appear to have ex experienced, uh, are experiencing some conflict, as we saw last week. Uh, uh, two women, Yodia and Syntyche, were uh, having at it. They had some sort of a fight, and uh, perhaps it was threatening the unity of the church. I don't know. Um, Paul writes to them urging reconciliation, but, uh, but truly this church in Philippi brought Paul joy, and remembering them was an encouragement uh, as he was languishing in a Roman prison. Paul found himself in a very dark dungeon cell chained to a Roman guard. The Apostle Paul himself, however, uh, well, actually he wasn't sure of his fate. Um, he didn't know if he was going to be executed or not. He uh, rested securely in uh, the knowledge of uh, the nearness of his Lord. He wasn't afraid to die. He could say with confidence, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death was only a door to being more fully in the Lord's presence. But Paul was not really concerned about himself as much as he was concerned about the church in Philippi that it would continue to be a strong witness to the love and grace of the Lord in his absence. And so he writes, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And then after the, the wonderful passage that we talked about last week where Paul urged his fellow believers to share the mindset of Jesus, working towards unity through humble service to one another after Jesus' own example, Paul goes on to say, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill 
his good, his good purpose. So Paul commends the Philippians for their responsive obedience to Christ, but he reminds them that they have to keep working at it. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this phrase is often misunderstood. Some assume that it means that Christians are responsible for doing things which will earn them their salvation on the principle that the Lord helps those who help themselves, which, uh, of course, is actually not in the Bible. In this view, it's up to us to work our way into God's good graces if we expect to get into heaven. So the more good deeds we do, the nicer person you are, the greater the chances of being fully approved by God in the end. And you get into heaven. Now, this is actually kind of the, the default mode of general religion in our country. It's about being a nice person. If you're nice enough, then God will be good to you in the end. But this is not biblical, and uh, this is not the, the meaning that Paul is trying to convey here. Salvation, as Paul goes on to stress in, his, in the next verse, is God's work from start to finish. For it, it is God who works in you to will and to act to fulfill God's good purpose. Salvation, the restoration of a right relationship with God, is not something you and I can accomplish or earn. It's a gift from God that we receive by faith. As Paul says in another place, actually in his letter to the, to the Ephesians, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that anyone can boast. Salvation, right relationship with God, with others, is God's gift to us. It is God who saves us, but that doesn't mean that we have nothing to do. Paul reminds the Philippians that they need to work out for themselves what this business of being saved will mean in practice. We don't work for salvation, but we have to work out our salvation. That is, we have to work out its meaning, its implications for our daily lives. The gospel, the good news of Christ, has to make a difference in the way we live. It must be demonstrated for all to see. We are to work out our salvation, says Paul, with fear and trembling, with wonder and awe, remembering and realizing who it is that we represent to the world, realizing at the same time that the, that, uh, that the one who makes this kind of life, is, life possible is God himself. So Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, offers a few examples of what working out our salvation looks like. In one brief verse, actually, he says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Uh, the underlining is mine. Those who are working out their salvation working it into the fabric of their lives, in their daily lives, will not be given to complaining and grumbling. Perhaps Paul, when he wrote this, was thinking about the people of Israel who were 40 years in the wilderness, and they spent all that time griping about their sad lot and worried that God wouldn't take care of them. 
We are not to be like that. We are not given to complaining and grumbling. Those who are working out their salvation will be found to be blameless. That is, will be above criticism, above reproach in our lives. They will seek purity of life. That is, they will try to be thoroughly wholesome in character and single-minded in their devotion to God. And they will show themselves to be children of God, showing the family likeness in their attitudes and actions. So Paul reminds the Philippians and all of us that we are called to the highest standards in our, as we walk in faith. And those standards are deserving of our best effort, even as God gives us the ability and the energy to live out what He commands. So if you give it your all, if you're truly obedient, if you're working out your salvation, he says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. I like uh, Eugene Peterson's contemporary rendition of these words. Go out into the world uncorrupted, a breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. Carry the light-giving message into the night so I'll have good cause to be proud of you on the day that Christ returns. You'll be living proof that I didn't go to all this work for nothing. When we live out our faith, giving the people around us a glimpse of good living and of the living God, we will inevitably stand out. People will be struck by our distinctiveness. Indeed, we will shine among them like stars in the sky as we hold firmly to the word of life. When people look at us, they ought to see extraordinary love and compassion They ought to see our goodness and our kindness and our patience and our generosity and our joy. They ought to see something of Jesus in us. Now, the world apart from God can be a very dark place. Paul reminded the Philippians of what they already knew, that they were living amongst a warped and crooked generation where selfishness reigned, where evil abounded, and where human life meant little. Given that reality, says Paul, the followers of Jesus ought to stand out. We should stand out all the more. They should, we should be distinctive. The contrast should be there. And in fact, the Philippians and other Christians of that, of that day did in fact stand out. They displayed an extraordinary love for one another and other people took notice. They elevated the status of women. They rescued unwanted babies who were thrown out to die of exposure. They cared for the sick. They cared for the poor and the widows and the orphans in effective ways. The light of God's love was evident in in ways that were so different than the people living around them and and in that decadent Greco-Roman society. They stood out in the crowd, which is why 
the movement grew so rapidly at the beginning. They were different. Paul wrote to the Philippians to encourage them to continue to shine like the stars in the night. Now, we don't see many stars in this neck of the woods. In fact, I read that we had our first official sunny day of the decade about a week ago. 80 straight days of cloudy days. But you know, <laughs> I need to go to Arizona is what I need to do. But anyway, even when the sky is clear around here, the stars still are not as brilliant as they ought to be because of ambient city light. You have to go way out. But imagine, thinking about this, imagine how spectacular, how beautiful the night sky must have been 2,000 years ago. I mean, the stars must have shown brilliantly against that truly dark sky. Shine like stars, says Paul. We ought to really stand out in the darkness around us. One of my favorite uh, Bible commentators was the late John Stott, who was an Anglican priest uh, and author of many books. I remember hearing him speak at University Press in Seattle. Uh, he's kind of one of my, one of my heroes. Uh, and uh, he was British. And so uh, on one of his visits to the United States, he said in a sermon, he says, you know what your own country is like. I'm a visitor, and I wouldn't presume to speak about America, but I know what Great Britain is like. I know something about the growing dishonesty, corruption, immorality, violence, pornography, the diminishing respect for human life, and the increase in abortion. Whose fault is it? Let me put it like this. If the house is dark at night, there is no sense in blaming the house. That's what happens when the sun goes down. The question to ask is, where's the light? If society becomes corrupt like a dark night, there's no sense in blaming society. That's what happens when fallen human society is left to itself and human evil is unrestrained and unchecked. The question is, where's the church? Where's the church? Where's the light? When Paul urged the Philippi, his Philippian friends to shine like stars, he may well have had in mind the words of Jesus, who said, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You're the light of the world. Let it shine. Where's our light? The other day, Lynn and I were teaching our little two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, Mia, that all-time Sunday school favorite, this little light of mine. And uh, one verse was particularly fun as she was learning this, and as she was singing out. Hide it under a bushel. No! 
I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No! I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No! I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. I mean, there is something really cute about a two-and-a-half-year-old kid with that emphatic, no, no, no way should we ever hide our light. Oh, man, to have that sense of enthusiasm. Our light has got to show, has to be visible to the world around us. We are not to keep our light confined to the walls of this, uh, of this building. Jesus didn't say, you are the light of the church. We are not to huddle together on Sundays, lighting our candles and basking in the glow of our warm fellowship, only to hide the light out in the world Monday through Saturday. We are not to keep our faith a secret. Again, Eugene Peterson renders this verse in a, in a way that speaks... Jesus says, you're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you in a light stand. Now that I put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Shine like stars, says Paul. And mariners have long looked to the stars, looking for guidance and direction. The stars pointed the way for them. So, too, our lights should so shine that others may be led to the source of our light and our love, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to ask, do members of our family and our classmates and our co-workers, our friends and neighbors, are they drawn to the light of Christ through our attitudes and actions? through our patience and our compassion and kindness? Do they know we are Christians by our love? When people encounter us, do they experience us as being bearers of good news? Do they say, oh, here comes good news? Or are we all about bad news and being judgmental and looking down on others? Are others drawn to want to know Jesus by the quality of our life? by our character. In fact, John Stott says, I sometimes think how splendid it would be if non-Christians, curious to discover the secret and source of our light, were to come up and inquire, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. So, we have here a clarion call to carry our light-giving message into the night, into the darkness around us. And sometimes the world can seem to be a very dark place. And we may be well tempted, actually, to hide our light. We may doubt our efforts, our little efforts, our value to God. I mean, what's our little light in the sea of darkness? What can we do? Well, let me close with a little fable. One night, a man took a tall, thin candle out of a drawer and 
he lit it and he began to climb up a, a long winding staircase. Where are you going, said the candle. This is a fable. Way up high, said the man, higher than the top of my house. What will you do there, asked the candle. Well, you're going to help me show the ships at sea where the harbor is. But the candle said, but no ship could ever see my little light. And the man said, well, don't think about your light, light being small. Just burn brightly and leave the rest to me. And when the man got to the top of the lighthouse, he took the candle and lighted the great lamps with it. And these lamps stood with their polished reflectors behind them, ready to direct ships to the safety of the harbor. The good works, the light of our good works may seem small, but God, in fact, can do great things with them. But our light has to be visible, not hidden away. A little light actually goes a long way. So, let us shine like the stars. Glow in the sun and leave the rest to Him. Amen.